rest of us, let me ask you if you would to turn in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1. And you can find that if you're using one of the Pew Bibles on page 1700, 1700, James chapter 1. I trust you all had a, uh, a blessed Thanksgiving. Um, our family made the trek to Minnesota. Uh, my mom uh, lives in western Minnesota. My wife's mom lives a little further even west than that, almost into uh, South Dakota. And so we were able to get there and visit our moms. And uh, we're thankful for those opportunities uh, to spend some time with them. And trust you had a blessed time with friends, with family, with loved ones, thanking God uh, for his goodness and enjoying just a little bit of time to, to refresh and to uh, rejuvenate uh, before we move ahead into the Christmas season. And we had some folks who came in uh, this week and faithfully decorated and uh, began shifting our attention that way. How many of you are listening to Christmas music already? Yes, many of you, okay. Some of you have to be kind of held back to try not to start back in July or something like that. Uh, but there's a lot of Christmas music. Of course, Jeff singing a, a song about the, the birth of Christ. And uh, this morning, I kind of thought, well, should I be preaching a message on Thanksgiving? Or, or should I be preaching a message on, on Christmas? But, you know, I'm, I'm burdened that we continue to press ahead in our study in the book of James. Now, I've preached a couple Wednesday nights on Thanksgiving, and we'll do that again this coming Wednesday night. And in due course here, uh, we'll give our attention to the message of Christmas. But for this Lord's Day morning and the next, uh, we're going to press ahead here in James chapter 1. If you're visiting with us today... Uh, during our Sunday morning services, we're engaged in a study through the book of James, a study that I have entitled, Down to Earth, because James writes with an intensely practical emphasis, and his purpose is to challenge us about whether we are living in a manner that reflects what we say we believe, that reflects who we say that we are, believers in the Lord Jesus. And so far, we've gotten through the first 11 verses, and our text this morning will be just a single verse, verse 12 in James chapter 1. Take a look at that with me if you would. James chapter 1, verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. The title of the message this morning is, a life enriched by trials. A life enriched by trials. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we are grateful to your many and rich and abundant blessings. Father, though we recognize uh, as a holiday Thanksgiving, might we be a thankful people always. Father, as we look ahead to a remembering of the birth of Jesus. Might we remember that always? Might we rejoice in a Savior who came, humbled himself, was born as a baby, lived a sinless life, went to the cross willingly, the Son of God, the God-man, shed his blood and gave his life that we might have that life. Father, these are rich truths. So is the rich truth that we look at this morning, that there is blessing for those who endure trials. Father, I suspect that there are some among us here who are going through some intensely hard times right now, some experiencing trials that maybe are known only to them, only to their family. And your word assures us, James here repeatedly, encourages us about how we face trials. And this morning he reminds us that there is a richness to enduring trials. There is great blessing. There is, yea, joy and happiness as we endure trials by looking to you and loving you. And I pray, Father, that you would use this passage to encourage us, whatever our present circumstance might be, to uh, challenge us to cling to you, to hold to you. Lord, I pray if there would be someone among us today who has never trusted the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior from sin, that 
they might realize that the greatest thing they need is a relationship with you. They need their sins forgiven. They need to receive eternal life. So, Father, would you accomplish your purposes in our midst here this morning? And Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. Father, might you open the hearts of these, your people, that your spirit might have his way in each life. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I spent quite a bit of time these past couple weeks just kind of grappling with uh, whether verse 12 goes with the verses that precede it or whether it goes with the verses behind it. You know, whether it's kind of at the front end of a thought or the back end of a thought. Is it the locomotive or is it the caboose? And and so I've read uh, probably a dozen or more sermons and and read through a a lot of sections in in many different commentaries and, and, and writings about the book of James. And some writers see it as the beginning of a paragraph talking about temptation. By that I mean the enticement to sin. And so they kind of connect it up with verses 13 through 15. Verse 13 says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Other writers understand verse 12 as the concluding statement to what went before, really verses 2 through 12, kind of a recap, kind of a summary, if you will, to the section that James began back in two, verses 2 and 3 when he says, My brethren, count it all joy, When you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And he goes on from there. And what makes this challenging, and we've talked about this before, but hopefully this will cement this in your mind so that as you read the scripture, you realize this, is is that word temptation or tempt or or, uh, temptations. But they they come from, there's a single Greek word that has two ideas to it. Sometimes it has the idea of trials. You know, that that kind of a testing. Sometimes it has the idea of of temptations, of enticements to sin. You know, in in English, we tend to associate very different meanings with that. You know, we have trials, and that that conjures up one thought, and temptation, another thought. But it's actually a single Greek word, a single family of Greek words, and it refers to things that try you or prove you, and that can involve both hardship, that kind of trial, And it can involve also temptations, enticement to sin. So in verse 2, the primary idea is that of what we call trials or hardships that test our our faith. And then in verses 13 and 14, the words from that same word family are used repeatedly to suggest enticement to sin. And, And while I suppose there could be some ambiguity, because obviously people land differently on how verse 12 really fits in, um, I think that the the context kind of makes those distinctions clear to us. I mean, verses 13 and 14 is clearly about temptation to sin. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, right? So there's there's what that passage is talking about. But then back in verses 2 and 3, it says, Count it all joy when you fall into divers. Various kinds of temptation, same word, knowing this that the trying, that's a different word, the trying of your faith worketh patience. It works endurance. It works perseverance. It works steadfastness. So in verses 2 and 3, James is talking about things that challenge your trust in God. Now, those two ideas intersect, right? That of temptation, enticement to evil, and that of trials and and burdens and and the hardness of life. Those things intersect in that both are tests. Trials test your willingness to cling to God in faith, you know, to believe Him when He says He'll take care of you. Temptations test your willingness to obey God and to turn your back upon sin and to follow Him rather than your flesh. And I think I've said before that, frankly, every trial is also a temptation to sin because, frankly, it's wrong not to trust God. So when you're, you're tested, will you trust God? There's a temptation there to rely on yourself or to, to get frustrated or angry with God. So the two kind of go together. And, and in that sense, the way the Greek language works makes that sort of a connection. But there's typically one emphasis or the other. And, and you can tell by the, the title that I've chosen for the message that the conclusion I've reached is that verse 12 is talking about trials principally. And then it kind of transitions from there into temptations. But it's talking about trials. I said it's a life enriched by trials. And, and really, to me, it kind of recaps and then adds a beautiful promise 
to that which he started teaching about in verses 2 and 3. And I base that on there's really three overlapping ideas, really three overlapping words. I mean, both verses 2 and 3 and, and 4, but they have the word temptations in there, and we see that same word in verse 12, okay? And that's kind of the, the, the reason for our problem here is that meaning of that word. But there are two other words that appear in verses 2 and 3, and then again in verse 12. And those are the words for endure. Okay? It's, it's translated patience in verses 2 and 3. Um, here in verse 12, it's endureth, same, same word. And, and it's a word that has the idea of remaining under. It's a military term. It speaks about those who in the face of great opposition remain steadfast, uh, fighting against that enemy. And I think I've used this little description before, but, but the way that I picture that, and, and to this day, every time I encounter that word, I, I picture this, okay? And, and I've probably shared this with you before, but, but some of you maybe have seen those weightlifters, and they do the clean and jerk, right? And, and they bend down. They take that huge weight and they, they lift it up to here. I won't do it in full, full, uh, you know, whatever. But they lift it to here. And then they do, they do this thing, right? And, and they set it there. And, you know, and they kind of get to their feet. And they set it on their, on their collarbone and on their shoulders there. And you think, that's got to hurt, right? And then the final step is when they do, you know, this number. And then they walk it up there. And, and they're standing there. And they're watching the judge. Because the lift isn't completed until they are standing, until they're stable, until they have that weight fully supported above their head, and finally the judge gives them the nod, and they drop it. But as they're standing there, and you see their muscles quivering, and their legs shaking, and, and they're sweating profusely. They're not even moving, but they're just sweating profusely as they remain under that weight. That's what that word endure, the word that is often translated patience means. It means to remain under, to stand under the burden, to stand under the weight, to endure that trial. And we see that word in verses 2 and 3. And we see that word again here in verse 12. And then the other word is the word that is translated trying. The trying of your faith works patience. It works endurance in verse 3. And here in verse 12, it's tried, when he is tried. The idea of the word is to be tested and approved. So we see those three elements, the temptation, the endurance, the trying in verses 2 and 3, and again in verse 12, and really those kind of serve as, a book, as bookends to a, a paragraph talking principally about trials. Now along the way, he talks about wisdom. Wisdom obviously in the face of trials, but also wisdom generally. And in verses 9 through 11, we talked about the idea of, of, of realizing that we are rich in Christ, not rich in material goods. And, and the fact is, whether it's wealth or whether it's poverty, both are trials. Both are things that test our faith. Both are things that we have to endure to remain under, steadfastly holding to Christ. So this whole section is about trials up through verse 12. And so he comes back here in verse 12 and just kind of summarizes that again and goes a little further. He says, blessed is the man that endures temptation or trials. For when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So we're talking about trials again. Now that means that there's going to be some overlap, you've experienced some of it already, between this message and the message that I preached a little while ago on verses 2 through 4. But James sees fit to come back and, and reinforce this a little bit again, and so, so will I. And in fact, he's going to come back around to this a few more times, most notably in chapter 5, and say some very, very similar things. And so we'll come back to it again. And I think that's because James is writing to a group of people, right? Those, those scattered Jewish Christians who are facing intense persecution and all manner of trials, and he knows that they need encouragement. And so he keeps coming back to things to help them face the trials of life and see what God is doing through those trials, and they need to hear this emphasis repeated, and folks, so do you, and so do I, because life is made up of trials, trials of all kinds of different forms, with all kinds of different purposes, but that is life, and if we allow ourselves to, we can just get crushed by those trials, and James is encouraging these people and us that we need to remain under the trials, we need to stand and hold fast to God, be steadfast, even when those trials seem to be a crushing weight. You know, when those weightlifters hold those bars, I don't know if this is an optical illusion or my imagination, but it almost seems as if the steel bar is bending under the weight. The weights are so, so large. And, and sometimes that's kind of what life is. You know, 
it's, it's bending us. It's, it's bringing us almost to a breaking point. And James says, you know what? Even in the face of those trials, we need to endure. We need to remain steadfast under that trial. Now, the trials that come have many purposes. God sends trials sometimes to humble us. He sends trials to, to wean us from the world. He sends trials to call us to concentrate on eternal things. He sends trials to reveal to us what we really love. He sends trials to enable us to help others in their trials. He sends trials to develop in us greater strength and greater usefulness in his cause. Sometimes he sends trials to chasten us for our sin and to push us towards righteousness. But in addition to these, James seems to be especially focused on the way trials challenge us regarding the genuineness of our faith. That's kind of what the book of James is about, right? It's, it's living your faith and, and, and being what you profess to be. And as we face those trials, not only do they reveal the genuineness of our faith, but they build our faith. And in the midst of trials, true faith will persevere, it will endure, it will hold on and move through. By faith in God, we can remain under the weight of those trials and find God's blessing upon our lives. And that's what our text this morning focuses on. James says, there is rich blessing for those who endure trials. Back in verse 2, he said, count it joy, right? There's joy for those who face trials. Now he says, there's rich blessing for those who endure trials. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Folks, do you want a blessed life? Do, do you want your life enriched spiritually and in every way? One way that comes to pass is, is as you cling to God, right? The way that blessing comes is as you cling to God, as you trust him in the face of trials. That's what our text is saying. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. I want us to begin by thinking a little bit about the word blessed uh, that's used here. And I'm going to do that in kind of, a, kind of a roundabout way. I mentioned that my, uh, my wife's mom lives a little bit further west than where my mom lives. Uh, she lives on a farm. And it's probably an uh, hour and a quarter drive between the two. And so during our time in Minnesota, I spent the majority of my time with my mom, especially considering her health. And my wife spent the majority of her time with her mom. Uh, but for Thanksgiving dinner, I drove out to the farm and drove back. And so Thursday afternoon, as I was driving back, I was uh, listening to WCCO radio out of Minneapolis, and they had a really interesting program there. Uh, they had a fellow on that program named Clay Jenkinson. He's a guy a little bit older than me, grew up in North Dakota, went to the University of Minnesota. He's a Rhodes Scholar, and, and his area of scholarship is the humanities and history. And he's uh, a guy uh, involved in... If you didn't come from a small town, maybe if you didn't come from a small town in the upper Midwest, I don't know, but they used to have these things called Chautauqua. You know, if you go back far enough to the Teddy Roosevelt days, Chautauqua was a, a means of, of, of adult education. And they were assemblies and gatherings that would come into these small communities that didn't have much culturally to offer, and, and there would be entertainment value, there would be educational value, and one of the things that would often happen at these Chautauquas, they would have people come in and they would discuss important people from history. And, and this guy was really into that. And he's best known for his first-person historical interpretations of various fi figures, right? Pastor Micah likes to come up and do sermons first-person of Peter or Jonah or whomever it might be. Well, this guy does certain historical figures, and he, and he dresses in the attire, and, and he talks and he engages with his audience or with interviewers as if he was the guy, okay? And so he does people like, uh, like Teddy Roosevelt and Jonathan Swift and Sir Francis Bacon. Um, but the thing that he is most known for is his interpretation of the person of Thomas Jefferson. In fact, he's done that in the White House. And he has a radio broadcast about that. Well, this was something he had done at some historical site. And they were interviewing him as Thomas Jefferson. And, and really, it was quite interesting, you know, quite a pleasant way to spend, you know, 75 minutes driving across the middle of nowhere and staying awake and listening to this guy talk as if he were Thomas Jefferson, and they're asking him contemporary questions, and he is answering them from his context. Well, at the end, he says, I suppose we should talk about that for which I will probably be most remembered, the writing of the Declaration of Independence. 
And it was a good history lesson for me. And he talked about how there was a committee of five people chosen. A couple of them dropped out. Of three committee members, John Adams, Dr. Van Franklin, and himself. He was the youngest, probably in his early 30s. And Franklin and Adams said, you write it. Okay, because he was, he was known as an, as an eloquent man. And he said, you know, he said, now, if, if Adams had written it, we would have probably had an 89-page document filled with footnotes and quotations from medieval theologians because that was the way Adams was. He said if uh, George Washington, probably the most famous figure of our day, would have written it, he was a very practical, to-the-point man. He probably would have said, we're tired of England, we quit. Okay? But, but Jefferson came in, and, and he writes uh, with the language of aspiration and, and, and these lofty ideals. And, and, the, and this guy, seeming as if he were Jefferson, said, you know, you probably don't remember much of what was actually the, the heart and the content of the Declaration, right? All the complaints against the king. You don't read those. What you're captured by is the preamble. That's, that's what I'm remembered for. And in particular, the 35 words of the second sentence of the preamble, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he talks a little bit about some of those words were edited a little bit, not his own, uh, but he has that idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And these are things Jefferson writes that are endowed to all men by God. And, and you know what, folks? That's true, and it's biblical. I mean, the, the, the Bible clearly testifies powerfully of the sacredness and the value of human life. Even though we're sinners, we're created in the image of God, and that value is presented in the Scripture. Liberty. The Apostle John quotes Jesus as saying, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, admittedly, he's speaking in particular there of freedom from the bondage of sin. But the Bible addresses freedom of every sort. And the Old Testament is full of all kinds of ethical principles that inform our system of justice, protecting against false accusations and providing for corroborating witnesses and the opportunity to be, to be heard and all those kinds of things. So the Bible is about freedom, about liberty. You say, okay, I, I understand that the Bible speaks of life and liberty, but does it really advocate the pursuit of happiness? Okay, Is God interested in that? Now, we tend to be cautious and, and rather stoic, and, and conservative Christians, and, and we might say, well, I believe in the pursuit of happiness personally, or I believe in that as, a, as an American ideal, but some of us probably are a little uncomfortable when it comes to saying that God approves of the pursuit of happiness, that God wants you to be happy. We might even be inclined to say things like this, well, God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. I have said that, okay? And, and, and I stand by it, but that doesn't mean that God's not interested in your happiness. And you say, Pastor, you're getting a little, little squishy here, you know, a little, little warm fuzzy, you know, saying that God's interested in, in happiness, but, but the, folks, the, the fact is, folks, God is interested in that. Now, the question becomes, what ought to inspire happiness, right? What, what ought to be the things that, that make us happy? You know, some people think that they can find happiness in the things of this world. As believers, we understand that you'll never find lasting peace or joy or happiness apart from Jesus Christ. You know, and, and we say very flatly and, and very, very dogmatically that there is no ultimate peace or joy or fulfillment in, in whatever uh, sexual relationships, in money, in power, in fame, in accomplishment, not in those things. Not in degrees, not in buildings, not in gold, not in whatever. Wealth can do many things, but it can't buy peace of mind. Fame can do many things, but it can't give you lasting joy. But we can find true happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, peace, joy in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the source of, of happiness. Years ago when our children were younger, you should probably still be singing this, but when they were younger, we used to sing a little song, Happiness is the Lord. Anybody ever hear that song? You know? and, and, and the refrain goes, Real joy is mine, no matter if the teardrops start. I found the secret, it's Jesus in my heart. You know, folks, I find that a lot of those songs that we categorize or kind of describe as children's songs are rich in their doctrinal truth. And, and, and this is free, okay? It has nothing to do with the sermon. But, you know, especially if you have young children, sing those songs with them. You know, they remember them. There's things that you remember in, that come to you by way of song. 
And, and they, you know, those songs run through your mind. You know, sometimes you have those songs you say, I can't get this out of your mind. Well, if it's a good song, it's a good thing that you can't get it out of your mind. Because it, it's teaching you. And it is reminding you. And, and that song that says, you know what? Even when the teardrops are flowing, even when life is hard, even when we are overwhelmed under the crush of that weight, there is happiness when we know Jesus in our heart. The joy Jesus brings will last even when our hearts are breaking. Some of you probably got excited this week when the Bears beat the Packers. Okay. There's a few of you in here maybe who aren't so excited about that, but, but most of you are, okay? But you know what? How long is that joy going to last? Until the Bears lose their next game, right? Until the next time they play the Packers, I don't know. You know I mean, but but you know, we, we have all these things that seem to bring us happiness and joy, but, but they're really quite shallow. They're not necessarily wrong, but, but there's nothing eternal. There's nothing permanent. There's nothing lasting. And yet those are the things that we chase after for happiness. Folks, the joy, the happiness that Jesus brings will last even when our hearts are breaking. And as James wrote to the suffering Christians, scattered across the Roman Empire. He included our text to tell us what a blessing it is to face trials, that that's something that actually brings happiness, how we can experience true happiness. That's what the word blessed is talking about. That same word is sometimes translated happiness, and it has that idea of happiness. In John 13, 17, Jesus says, If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Same word that is blessed in our text. 1 Peter 3.14 says, But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. 1 Peter 4.14, If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Right here in James chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. And, and, and there are other texts as well. But there's this word that sometimes refers, is, is, is translated as blessed, sometimes as happy, and both are good translations. You go back to the book of Psalms, how does it begin? Blessed is the man, right, that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. You go to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' perhaps most well-known sermon, his, his longest sermon, and it begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. We call those the Beatitudes, right? When we have something that begins with blessed are, we say that's a, that's a Beatitude. And, and in the Greek language, that same word sometimes has the meaning of happy and blessed. Spurgeon says, well, the difference is that uh, happiness is earthly and blessedness is heavenly. His point isn't that you don't experience blessing on earth, and his point isn't that you don't experience happiness in heaven. His point is that there's a difference between worldly happiness, uh, temporal happiness, and true happiness, true blessing that persists on even into eternity. And James here tells us, blessed, happy is the man. True happiness, ongoing happiness. Eternal happiness is the man that endureth temptation for when he's tried. He shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, I want you to notice that James doesn't say happy or blessed is the man who doesn't experience trials. Right? We tend to think I'd be happy if I could just get, be done with these trials. You know, if life would just be easier, I'd be happier. James says no you wouldn't because it's actually the experience of trials that, that is connected in with that source of blessing. Blessed is the man who endures trials. And, and it isn't just that you're blessed by being in the trial. The blessing comes as we endure in those trials, as we remain steadfastly looking to God in the midst of those trials. That, that doesn't mean we may not have our times when we're struggling and, and we're saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, and when we're given a little bit to complaint, and that is wrong, but, but those things don't disqualify us somehow or other from God's blessing. But his point is that characteristically speaking, if you know Jesus as your Savior, and life is just a succession of trials, and you endure in those trials, and you keep coming back to Him, and you keep looking to Him, blessed are you, happy are you. And it's not just a temporal happiness. It's not just a short-lived happiness. It's something that can persist through the hard times, the good times, and the bad. A blessed life comes to those who endure in trial, those who cling to God. That's another of those paradoxes we talked about recently. It may not seem to make sense, but it's God's word, and it is absolutely sensible. And it's always true. And that's the perspective that we need. 
is that there is blessing to be found in enduring trials by depending on the Lord Jesus. Our lives are enriched by trials. And you say, well, how, how so? You know, how are our lives enriched by trials? Let me suggest five ways. Certainly you could come up with more. But let me suggest five ways in which our lives are enriched by trials. Here's the first one. As you endure trials, you grow spiritually. I've mentioned to you before that Jesus' method of developing his disciples involved teaching and testing. You know, he would teach them things. He would share promises with them. He would help them to understand God's word. He was teaching things. He was exemplifying things. He was illustrating things. He was teaching and teaching and teaching, but then they would be tested. He would ask them questions. He would send them out to, to carry out and live out the things that he had been showing them, teaching and testing. You know, it's, it's not enough to be a, an ivory tower academic when it comes to the word of God. We've got to be living it out and experiencing it. There is a need for that testing to bring a reality to that which we have been taught, to that which we claim to believe, this idea of teaching and testing. Through the scripture, God teaches us about himself. He teaches us about his priorities. He illustrates it. He gives us examples. He teaches us about ourselves and our needs. And he gives us great and precious promises to build our faith. And then he tests us. He sends trials to see if we are learning to trust him. A little bit earlier we read 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It isn't enough just to grow in knowledge. We also have to grow in the experience of God's grace in order to live out those things that we know in, in a God-honoring way in our lives. Grow in grace and in knowledge. Sometimes I will share with you some of my stories from my days in the Navy. And, and many of you have commented that you, uh, you appreciate them and, and you enjoy them and they, they draw you into the message. And, and I'm thankful for that. But, but I will tell you a secret, okay? I tell you those stories and, and I usually have a smile on my face and I have a very lighthearted manner about it when I tell you that. But, but actually, when I was living in those experiences, it wasn't always so pleasant. You know, I mean, I, I could tell you the story about being on the maneuvering watch, being on the bridge as our ship was pulling into uh, the harbor in New London, Connecticut. And it was about 20 below zero. And the wind was blowing at about 30 miles an hour. And it was, and it was sleeting. And, and the tide was, uh, was ebbing. And you're up there in this orange exposure suit and you've got goggles on and you've got a, a mask that makes you look like you're a serial killer or something over your face. And, you know, there's nothing that is exposed and you're standing up there with this massive ship and, and you know, and the wind is howling and you're having to yell at the person standing right next to you. And, and as we're doing that this one time, we almost hit a buoy. Now, you might think that's not a big deal. Let me tell you, on a nuclear submarine, hitting anything is a big deal. You know, the pier, a buoy... <laughs> God forbid another ship, okay? But, but those, those are bad, bad, bad things, you know? And, and let me tell you, the pressure was running high. And, and, and the skipper and I, he was the, you know, he's the CO, I'm the officer of the deck, you know, you're, you're seeing your, uh, your life in the Navy hanging by a thread, and you're, and you're, you're yelling and, and trying to, you know, and, and now I can tell, and I can smile about that, and, and I can say that was fun and exciting times, but let me tell you, at that moment when you are chilled to the bone, when you're in fear for, you know, how this thing is going to, what's going to happen, are we going to end up being, being taken by the current onto the rocks, let alone a buoy, it's not so fun. You know, it's, it's a trial. But God has graciously given us a, a mind of nostalgia, right, where we look back on things and, and we can forget some of the pressures. You know, some of you have young people who are in the service. If they're in the Navy, there's a little saying that they have in the Navy that says a, a happy sailor is a complaining sailor. Sometimes people use a little more graphic language than that, uh, but, they, but they say that, you know, and, and they, they, people are going to be, and yet, you know, you talk to those sailors years after the fact, and they look very fondly on those days, you say, why is that? Because I realize how much I learned. I, I realize how much those experiences shaped my life to this day. You know, my kids probably wish sometimes that some of those experiences hadn't shaped my life. But, you know, I mean, the, those things make a difference. And, and I value the things that I learned, even though when I was learning them, I wasn't always really excited about it. And, and folks, trials are like that. When we're in the midst of them, it may seem like the wrong kind of excitement. It, it may seem like it's a, a crushing thing that is like to destroy us. But, you know, God is using that to teach us. 
and he's using that to draw us to himself. And in due time, we will come to realize that. And James is saying, you know, when you're in the midst of that trial, trial when you feel like throwing in the towel, when you're, when you're bent to, is to complain, when, when you're, you know, you're, you're fearful, you're whatever, remember, there's blessing as you endure these trials. There is blessing. One of the things God is doing is he is teaching you and you grow spiritually and in every way through that trial. Second, as you endure trials, you have a greater sense of God's presence and his love and his grace and his care. I don't know if you've ever had someone say something like this to you. I've heard it on a number of occasions. A person might say, you know, I know this sounds strange, but I wouldn't trade my experience having cancer for anything or, or whatever experience that we would look at as, you know, a very, very unpleasant, undesirable thing. And they'll say, you know what? <laughs> That was one of the richest times in my life. And, and why do they feel that? Because one of the things that, that trials do as we endure in those trials is they help us to see that God indeed is faithful, that God indeed is there, that God indeed is near to us, that God indeed loves us, that God's grace is indeed sufficient. And there is a sense of a, a spiritual oneness with him that we perhaps do not customarily experience. But the pressure of that trial helps us to realize how desperately we need God and how faithful and how good He is. Now, folks, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that if things are going well, that means God is far from you. I'm not saying that when things are going well, God loves you less. But the difference is that when we're under that pressure, we sense it more because we're looking the right place. We're not distracted by all these other things. We're desperate and we say, God, I need you, and we find Him, and He's right there. And He's holding out His hands. And he's saying, I will care for you, and I, I will protect you, and I will watch over you, and I'll give you the wisdom that you need, and I will teach you through this trial. I am there for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can't escape me. And when we're in trials, we look and we see. He's there all the time. But we see his love and his grace and his care and his concern more acutely when we're feeling that pressure when we feel like our arms are ready to break and the weight is ready to crush us. And we realize that, you know what, God is there holding that weight with us and he's carrying it through us. As you endure trials, you have a greater sense of God's presence, love, grace, and care. We have some uh, skilled musicians in our church, people that play stringed instruments, right? The piano is a stringed instrument. Okay? The violins, cellos, violas, stringed instruments. Have you ever thought about this, okay? How would you describe the condition of the strings on a violin or in that piano? They are taut, right? They are tight. If, if those strings were not in tension, they wouldn't make a sound. The music comes when the strings are stretched tight and then they're plucked or they're scraped over with a bow, or they're you know, hit with a hammer. But it's that, that tension that brings the music. And, and there's a, a sense in which, folks, the, the music comes out in our lives when we're under tension. The reality of our faith is manifested when we're under tension. Our ability to say credibly, I love God and I'm trusting him, is seen when we are under tension, when, when that stress is there as we endure trials, as we're pulled taut, and we depend upon God as we ought, we experience the beauty of his presence in greater measure, and our lives manifest it as well. And we're able to share that beauty with others. That brings me to the third way in which our lives are enriched by trials. Third, as you endure trials, you're better able to minister to others and to be a blessing to them. When, when people are hurting, they need compassion and empathy. There's, there's a reason why... Lots of people flock to group therapy, okay, and, and all kinds of issues with that, but, but because they want to be surrounded by people who say, I feel your pain. I, I understand what you are experiencing. You know, and, and it's a help to know that others are experiencing those same kinds of things and, and that they are getting through those kinds of things. Your life and the life of others around you is enriched by trials because the experience of those trials and your endurance through them can be a great encouragement to others. Many of you know my, my oldest daughter works as a nurse in pediatric oncology. And, uh, and so they have 
patients that come in and they're going through various treatments and, and, uh, and they create a real bond with those families and, and sometimes a child dies. That's the nature of, of the work. And, you know, I've often thought that if I were there looking at those parents, you know, um, I could say I can, I can try to imagine what it feels like. You know, I, I, can, I can try to empathize. But, you know, let's say, let's say that you lost a child at age six to, uh, to brain cancer. And, and you look at the face of that other parent and they have tears streaming down their face and they are just undone. And you say to them, you know what? I know what you're going through. I lost, you know, my, my son to whatever at this time. And they look at you and they say, how, how did you get through it? What an opportunity then to be able to say, let me tell you about my Jesus. Because he's the one who got me through it. You know, I could say those words but it would not resonate with that person the same way as someone who has experienced just what they are going through. You know, maybe you've been abandoned by a husband or wife. You have an experience there, a, a horrible experience, but one that God can use to help you be a blessing and an encouragement to somebody else. Maybe you've had cancer. Maybe you've lost your job, maybe repeatedly, and struggled to find another. Maybe you've battled depression. Um, you know, maybe what, whatever the trial may be, there are others facing those same trials. And, and the fact is, our having endured a particular trial gives us a greater opportunity to minister to someone else who is enduring a similar trial. Because there is just something authentic about saying, I have been there. Not just I can imagine what it's like to be there. I have been there. So one of the blessings that comes as we endure trials is you're able to better minister and be a blessing to other people. Then uh, fourth, and, and I'm moving quickly here, as you endure in trials, you become assured of the genuineness of your faith. Our text says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. And I think I've mentioned to you before, that word tried there comes from the world of metallurgy. It's used to describe the process of testing a metal to see if it's genuine used to describe a metal free of impurities. It was uh, showing a metal to be what it was said to be, and that's the word that's used here. There is blessing as we endure trials because it shows us to be what we claim to be, believers in the true God, dependent on Him. James wants us to know that, that standing strong in hard times brings its own reward throughout life. We're going to continue to face trial after trial after trial, but as we endure in a trial, there is a building of faith and there's a demonstration that we have trusted God. People will often say, for example, in times of, of bereavement or times of suffering, and as, as a pastor, I, I have the, the privilege of being involved in conversations like this often, but they'll say, I don't know how people deal with things like this without the Lord. You know, I've heard that more times than I can count. You know what, when someone says that, that's an evidence of the genuineness of their faith. They're saying, you know what, I, I, I can endure this trial only because God is real and he is at work in my life and he is strengthening me and his grace is sufficient. They may not use those words, but that's the essence of what they're saying when they say, I don't know how you can get through something like this without God, without knowing Christ, without his working in my life. And it's an indication that your faith is genuine. Folks, when you find yourself thanking God for helping you through a trial, that's an evidence of the genuineness of your faith. When you ask other people to pray for you as you face a trial, that's an evidence of the genuineness of your faith. As you testify of God's help and his strength through that trial, of his goodness, that's an evidence of the genuineness of your faith. As you remember God's past help and blessing as you face present trials, that's an evidence of the genuineness of your faith. And folks, it is only when we are in those times of testing, in those times of pressure, that we fully appreciate the reality and God says that as we believe, as we endure, we can be assured of his approval in the end, and we are encouraged in our faith. So we've surveyed so far four ways in which our lives are enriched through trials. As you endure in trials, you grow spiritually. As you endure in trials, you have a greater sense of God's presence and love and grace and care. 
As you endure in trials, you're better able to minister to others and to be a blessing to them. As you endure in trials, you become more assured of the genuineness of your faith. And number five, as you endure in trials, you're reminded of the victor's crown in heaven. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, there's, there's a couple different words in the Greek language for crown. In, in this particular word, it's the word stephanos. We get the word Stephen from it. Um, but this crown isn't a reference to the king's diadem, right? It's not a, a golden uh, pointed crown, whatever, uh, that's put on royalty. But it's a reference to the victor's crown. It's the laurel wreath placed on the head of the athlete who is victorious in the games. Or it's the laurel wreath placed on the head of the general who has led his army to victory in battle. And those crowns, those wreaths, they aren't rewarded in the middle of a contest. They come at the end when the race is over. And so here James gives us a reminder that as difficult as the trials of this life may be, if we'll endure, if we'll be steadfast in faith, there is coming a day when we will be crowned the victor. Sometimes when, when believers read about crowns, they kind of get this mindset of, you know, I'm going to accrue certain crowns. And, and, and they think about, you know, almost as if it's a competition between one person or another. You know what? None of us merit anything. But there is God's approval. There is God's crown. There is the crown of life to every person who endures in faith. And really when it talks about the crown of life, relationship between those words I think is best understood as the crown which is life and we don't have time this morning to elaborate on why I think that okay but it's saying you know there is the crown of eternal life that comes to everyone who is a true believer and, and thus endures in their faith and it says you know we might think that he would say there's a crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who persevere or to those who obey or to those who live righteously. And certainly, we ought to persevere, and we ought to obey, and we ought to live righteously. But he says, there is a crown of life promised to those who love him. And you say, why does he emphasize that? I think it's because love for Christ keeps us from loving the world. Love for Christ motivates us to remain under those trials. Love for Christ doesn't exempt us from trials, but it does give us the strength to keep going, and keep trusting, and keep clinging to God. And, and folks, here's how it is. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then you do love him. Now, there might be need for you to love him more. There, there certainly would be need for me to love him more. But the fact is, our character, characteristic relationship to the one who has saved us is that we do love him. And, and there is a promise that eternal life is ours if you are a lover of Jesus, if you know him as your Savior. Now, if you don't know him, then you may say you love Jesus. But if you have never come to him humbly and in saving faith, then you don't know him. He doesn't know you. And you can't say that you love him. And that crown is lost to you. But Jesus came with the intention of establishing a relationship that each person, a little bit earlier we read, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's desire is to save every person. God's desire is that every person in this auditorium, under the, the sound of my voice, someone who may listen on the internet two years from now, God's desire is that each person would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that they would become a child of the King, that their sins would be forgiven. And it's not about what we do. And that's why we would strike that delicate balance of, of encouraging people to live right and make right choices, but realizing that salvation is entirely by grace through faith, and, and we don't earn that eternal crown. We don't earn eternal life. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And if you're here this morning and you have never come humbly to the Lord and admitted your sin and admitted your need, and realize that you can do nothing to save yourself. It's not by the works of righteousness that you have done or could do or want to do or try to do. It's because of what Christ has already done. He paid it all. He shed his blood and gave his life for you. And if you'll be honest about the fact that you merit nothing, that you deserve nothing, that you can earn nothing, then he wants to save you. And you just cry out to him and ask him, and he will. And you know what? When he opens your heart to that truth, and, and when you become his child, you will love him. 
children sometimes struggle with their parents, but at the end of the day, they love them. Sometimes maybe we struggle with God a little bit, but we love him. And James says, you know what? Endure in those trials as a child of God. Let your love for Christ motivate you as a child of God. And you can be assured of that crown. James is speaking that we ought to to keep going. We ought to keep believing. We ought to keep enduring. We ought to keep on loving Jesus. One, One last application point, and then we'll be finished here. You know, sometimes you may have a conversation with an older person who is experiencing some really intense physical struggles. And, and good believing people will, will sometimes ask the question, you know, why doesn't the Lord just take me home? You know, I'm ready. I, I know him. Why, why, doesn't, why does God leave me here? I can't, you know, I'm, I'm so infirm that I can't really do anything for him. I can't be, uh, I can't be involved. And, and dear person, if maybe you have days when you feel like that, you know, let me say this. It may be that the Lord has left you on this earth just so that you can have another day to love him back, another year. to Just love him. Yeah, just love him. You don't have to necessarily do something. Obviously, we, we, we can always pray. I mean, there are things you can do, but the point isn't about what we do. The point is we ought to be a people who relish loving God. And, and James says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Folks, that is a a wonderfully encouraging statement. It's It's a great promise of happiness, of blessedness in this life and in the next. And it comes through the seemingly unlikely source of trials. Our lives are enriched by trials. Do you believe that? Are you willing to embrace that truth and allow it to shape how you face the difficulties of life? As you endure trials, you grow spiritually. As you endure in trials, you have a greater sense of God's presence and His care and His grace and His love. As you endure in trials, you're better able to minister to others and be a blessing to them. As you endure in trials, you become assured of the genuineness of your faith. And as you endure in trials, you're reminded of the victor's crown that awaits you when you meet the Lord in heaven. And it's a love for Jesus that gives the strength you love him, do you trust him, will you endure whatever God brings? Let's stand to our feet and bow our heads. Our Father, we are thankful for the rich truth that we find just in this one sentence, one verse of Scripture. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to love you more, that you would help us to cling to you in trials, to endure those trials with joy knowing that there is rich blessing. There is the enrichment of life both now and in eternity for those who endure the trials, the difficulties, the persecution, the harshness that sometimes accompanies life. And Lord, I do pray if there would be someone here this morning who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that they would turn to him in saving faith even this morning. Bless now in this time of invitation. Let your spirit speak to our hearts. And apply your word powerfully in each life. In Jesus' name I pray.